biology. 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 Hello and welcome back to another episode of the HSC Biology Podcast. Today we are going to go through quite a few of the different dot points in the syllabus um, and pretty much finish off Module 7. So we're actually going to skip back a little bit to start and the dot point we're looking at first is analyze responses to the presence of pathogens by assessing the physical and chemical changes that occur in the hosts, animals, cells and tissues. So the reason that I skipped this and have come back to it is because a lot of the physical and chemical changes we talk about really happen in the first, second, and third line of defense. And uh, because they're all about changes, we need to talk about things that can change in the body. So uh, just a quick recap of some of the physical and chemical changes. Now looking at the chemical changes that occur, they are very, uh, they're in a relationship with the physical changes. So once a chemical is released, usually the physical change occurs. So for instance, the secretion of histamines is a good chemical that is released to increase that permeability of the blood vessels that I just spoke about. We also have pyrogens, and a pyrogen is a chemical that induces uh, fever or the increase in our body temperature. And the ones that we've spoken about very recently include the production of cytokines. And cytokines really covers a whole bunch of different chemicals involved in that third line of defense. Um, a good example would be interleukin, um, and interleukin is one of the chemicals released to stimulate the cytotoxic T cells and B cells to become plasma cells. Um, there are other examples as well, like interferons and complement proteins. You can kind of have a look into that. But I think having three good examples of each is really what you need for most HSC questions. So physical, increase in permeability of the blood vessels, an increase in temperature, and then you can look at either lymph nodes, swollen, or um, increased urination is an easy one to remember. Um, in terms of chemical, we've got the histamines being released, the pyrogens being released, and the cytokines being released. So there's three good examples of different physical and chemical changes that occur in the host animals, cells, and tissues. All right, let's move on. So now skipping down past the first, second, and third line of defense, we're looking at the next inquiry question, which is how can the spread of infectious diseases be controlled? And the dot point itself, which is has become quite easy for the kids to actually get the answers to this one because they've lived through it, um, but it says investigate and analyze the wide range of interrelated factors involved in limiting local, regional, and global spread of a named infectious disease. So this is where, you know, having lived through a pandemic, it actually makes this dot point and a couple others quite simple for the students to answer. Because it just says a named infectious disease, coronavirus is, is the obvious choice here because the students have lived through those local, regional and global factors. Um, so just a quick recap of them, but again, this pretty much just takes a discussion in class now Now with the kids. Uh, coronavirus, the local factors, I ask my students what are the local factors that are affecting you day to day, and you know, they say wash hands, um, social distancing, clean the surfaces around you, um, quarantining, depending on where you've been, we have the contact tracing app, and we have lots of testing facilities, so these things all occur locally. Now, regionally, it's very similar, um, but non-essential travel is obviously not allowed if, if uh, you've been in a hotspot and things like that. Um, only essential services, which were switched you know, 
to only essentials when we were in the peak of the pandemic here in Australia. Uh, interstate travel, so borders being closed down by governments um, in their local areas. So you can't go from region to region. And again, contact tracing and that app is uh, certainly a regional useful thing as well because that's how we find out when people go from one area to another and when we need to sort of shut down certain areas. In terms of global, again, most students can tell you what happened globally. You know, all airports were shut down. There was no international travel. Anyone that comes in from um, a country that has either had a coronavirus outbreak or even if they haven't are quite often tested and if uh, it was at the peak of the pandemic they were just immediately put into hotel quarantine and obviously uh, testing is involved in the global uh, one of the global factors to minimize the spread of that disease and contact tracing again so you can fit that all into that category so that pretty much covers the majority of that dot point and the next dot point goes through many things that are similar once again so it says Investigate procedures that can be employed to prevent the spread of disease, including but not limited to hygiene practices, quarantine, vaccination, including passive and active immunity, public health campaigns, use of pesticides, and genetic engineering. So again, quite a few crossovers in here, but some key details that you need to pay attention to. Um, the first one, hygiene practices. Again, most students can tell you some hygiene practices without too much thought. So coughing in your sleeve, washing your hands, um, uh, washing yourself, showering, brushing your teeth, they're all hygiene practices. In terms of quarantine, again, most students can tell you that the idea is that you isolate, you stay away from people for a set period of time so that you do not transmit that disease during either its incubation period or the time in which uh, scientists have said that you are no longer contagious. Uh, so quarantine is, again, one thing the students do know well. Now, vaccination, I have been through vaccination in the uh, previous episode, so you make sure you check that out if you want to know how a vaccination works. And remember, there is a difference between vaccination and immunization. Vaccination is the process of getting the injection and those uh, viral or bacterial particles into your uh, body. Immunization is where your body actually develops the immunity, so it sets off that immune response. So just because you have been vaccinated does not mean that you are immune. You may not have developed immunity. You may not have been immunized because your B and T cells weren't developed. You don't have any memory B and T cells, and that does happen. And so you just have to be careful. You know the difference between vaccination and immunization. But the key dot point here is including passive and active immunity. So active immunity is the one that we've really been speaking about and the most likely and best version of the vaccine. That's where you get an injection of the dead, weakened or attenuated virus that is going to stimulate your immune response so you develop the third line of defense or those memory B and T cells. So again, go and check out the episode I did previously on vaccinations to understand how they work. Now the one here that they will probably get you on in the HSC is passive immunity in terms of vaccination. So what is passive vaccinations? Well, really, the main example that I can find here is that it comes from injecting antibodies from somebody else that has already fought off the disease. So basically, uh, we obviously have antibodies that can cling to and stick to those viral particles. 
if you don't have or can't make your own, then you may ha- benefit from being injected with a bunch of those antibodies. And so this is passive because you're not developing any sort of uh, mechanism to maintain those antibodies. The idea is that once they have uh, been broken down in your body, they will no longer be useful. So you are not immune for life just because you had a vaccination of these antibodies. However, they are effective in doing the four things we spoke about before, blocking the functions, basically alerting the immune system um, for for that third line of defense to be initiated. There is also another example that we can look at, which is the maternal antibodies. So this is another idea of passive immunity where you will receive antibodies from your mother. Again, they're not your own because you didn't develop them using the methodology we've spoken about, but you will get the benefits. So that's another passive version of immunity, but that's not really vaccination, just a good example. The best one to use there by far is the injection of antibodies that are short-term and cause your body to hopefully get rid of the pathogen or at least alert your immune response, but they will go away after a set period of time. So just be aware of the uh, of the wording between passive and active immunity, definitely something you need to look out for. One other thing you can mention about vaccinations, so procedures that we use, and really this can come into public health campaigns as well, is the uh, national immunization schedule. So here in Australia, we're very lucky that we have a schedule that everybody has to stick to um, in order to maintain that high level of herd immunity amongst the population. And so our vaccination schedule starts from a very young age, so I think uh, as early as a few weeks old, um, and then goes all the way until you get into your teenage years. And then you, uh, you quite often may need booster shots as well throughout, uh, throughout the vaccination schedule. Um, and then when you get a bit older as well, that continues on. So you get another shot when you uh, get into your 70s and 80s, I believe. I'll have to double check that. So that covers vaccinations. Now, if we look at public health campaigns, um, we are probably looking at stopping infectious diseases because we're in that topic at the moment. But this kind of crosses over with the module eight stuff as well when we talk about some public health campaigns involved there. But two good ones that you can use for public health campaigns from the Australian government include the immunization, get the facts public health campaign. And this is a good one because it relates directly to vaccinations and how they all work. So um, make sure you check out that one. Um, But most public health campaigns are all aimed at doing the same thing, creating awareness, social acceptance, minimizing sickness, and maximizing the quality of life. So really, you can put you can answer just about any question with those four key points, because they're the social implications of most public health campaigns. And when we look at immunization, Again, you could talk about the importance of it for any of the diseases, measles, mumps, rubella, um, coronavirus, influenza, and then go into a bit of detail. The other one that is useful and, again, linked back to what the students know is the COVID Safe campaign. And the COVID Safe campaign links directly to all the things we just spoke about. So all the local, regional, and global factors are really all a part of that COVID Safe campaign. But the main components were to uh, use the app 
Um, so that was a big push to use the app. Get tested was a big one. So make sure if you have any of the symptoms, you get tested. Um, and obviously try and self-isolate or quarantine yourself if you do feel sick or notice anything in particular. Again, the idea is to create awareness, social acceptance, minimize sickness, and maximize quality of life for everybody. So it does say public health campaigns as well. So there's an S on the end there. So that's why I gave you two examples there. And I think a few years ago, they did ask for two examples of public health campaigns that minimize the spread of disease. So just be aware of that. The next one is the use of pesticides. And again, they've got a plural on the end there. So you've got to be careful and make sure you have two examples here. So what is a pesticide? A pesticide is used to spray, usually on crops, to stop either a bacterial, fungal, or insect pest from eating or killing the plant. And some good examples that you can look at, the one that I do with my students is called Captain, which is a fungicide. That's spelled C-A-P-T-A-N. And this is quite a good one because it's easy for the students to understand and write about. But basically, Captain is a fungicide that acts like a barrier, protective layer on top of the surface of a leaf that prevents fungi, because it's a fungicide, from eating it and breaking it down. Um, so that really stops it from functioning. If it can't get access to the plant, then it can't grow and then it can't reproduce like anything else. Another good example of a pesticide, which is one that you may have heard of, is Roundup. And the key ingredient of Roundup is the glyphosate. And that's the one that's got a bit of controversy around it uh, between its links uh, with cancer and the damage it does to the environment. But again, the idea is that it's stopping the spread of weeds and other plant pests. Um, and it is quite complex in how it functions directly. Um, but they're two good examples, Captain, which is a fungicide, and Roundup, which uses glyphosate, uh, that you can check out for pesticides. Now, as for genetic engineering, we have spoken a bit about genetic engineering and its usefulness, and the best examples to use here are things like BT cotton. So genetic engineering is designed to minimize the uh, use of pesticides in the case of BT cotton and BT corn. They directly put a chemical which breaks down the um, boll worm or boll moth uh, intestines or stomach, um, and that stops them from functioning. So uh, that's one way to minimize the spread of a disease by genetically engineering a plant so you don't have to spray as much insecticide and that limits the damage to the environment and to other um, insects and, and plants that need to grow around that. Um, and obviously the function itself is to uh, stop a certain disease, which in this case is a plant pest, from infecting the plant. So BT cotton and BT corn um, and all the BT varieties are great examples of current biotechnologies that limit the spread of disease. All right, so I'm just going to touch on two more of the dot points today. The first one is, again, a nice crossover with everything we've done today, and that is investigate and evaluate environmental management and quarantine methods used to control an epidemic or pandemic. And you guessed it again, our pandemic, the coronavirus, lends itself very well to this question, the environmental management and quarantine methods. Um, again, students can write about this. They just know it already. They lived through it wiping down surfaces, um, uh, telling people to wear masks, uh, you know, the use of uh, quarantine methods like uh, keeping people at their homes and using contact tracing apps. Again, they all link back to this stop point. So again, a nice crossover, a simple one uh, for the students to get. 
Um, now, the last dot point we'll do today is investigate and assess the effectiveness of pharmaceuticals as treatment strategies for the control of infectious diseases. For example, antivirals and antibiotics. So with this dot point here, it is a for example, so you can pick usually to do either. Um, I actually touch on both in class because then you can kind of tell which one is more effective uh, because the dot point says assess the effectiveness. Now it is pretty hard to determine the effectiveness of specific antivirals. It's a bit easier to determine the effectiveness of antibiotics. So I tell my students to go down the antibiotics route uh, because they are more effective or they have been more effective. So what is an antiviral? We'll start with that. So the function of an antiviral is obviously to stop the function of viruses. And the way that it does this is through a number of different mechanisms. There is so many different antivirals out there and they do so many different things. But the basic function of all antivirals is that they limit the ability of a virus to reproduce and do its normal functions in the body. And quite often you will get a cocktail of many different drugs that hope to limit the ability of certain viruses from doing what they're doing. One easy one for sort of students to understand is the fact that we've talked a lot about viral projections, these projections that stick out the side of a virus, and those projections are used to kind of get into the cell like a key. And that key obviously is very important that it stays, you know, open and, and, and exposed so that you can get access or the virus can get access. So some of the drugs that are used as antivirals attach to those proteins and basically stop the ability of those viruses from entering the cell. Now, when that happens, if they can't get in, they can't reproduce. So it's pretty simple. Again, easy one for students to understand. The second one that we'll talk about is the processes that the virus uses. So when a virus gets into your body, if it's made from something like RNA, it actually needs to make a copy of DNA and put that in your nucleus to start making more of it. It's a bit more convoluted than, uh, than a simple get in, drop the RNA and make more of yourself. So they use a number of different uh, enzymes to basically reverse transcribe which is what we call reverse transcriptase, reverse transcribe that RNA and turn it back into DNA. Now, this process, you know, is, is relatively simple for students to understand. It's copying the A's and the T's and the G's um, and the U's in this case, um, and it's making a copy of DNA. And when it does that, again, the antiviral is going to act on the function of that reverse transcriptase. And basically, when it's making a new copy of DNA inside your cell, you've got a modified chemical that kind of fits in between the transcriptase and the new DNA molecule. And it stops it from, from moving ahead, kind of like a stop codon. It basically just stops or kind of like a, a mutation, a point mutation that just stops the copying. So this is uh, obviously very useful um, because it stops the virus from making the DNA. Therefore, the DNA can't be put into the nucleus and the virus can't make more copies of itself. So that's a, a pretty easy one to understand. All right, now let's move on to antibiotics. And this is probably a better example to use just because there is more information and it's a bit more simple for students to understand. So what is an antibiotic? An antibiotic is something that functions to stop or kill any bacteria in the body. So you've got to remember that antibiotics work against bacteria and they have two main functions and that is to stop a bacteria from doing what it's doing or to kill a bacteria. And we call those two categories 
bacteriostatic, that is to slow down the processes or stop it from functioning, and bactericidal, and that is to kill the bacteria. Now, antibiotics can do one or the other or both, um, and it depends on the bacteria that you're using them on. Now, this brings us to the function of narrow spectrum versus broad spectrum as well. And a narrow spectrum antibiotic has the function to kill only one or a few types of bacteria. These are often quoted as better to be using because they are more targeted. Therefore, they're going to kill just the bacteria you need to. Whereas broad spectrum antibiotics are quite often said to be less effective because you're giving it to an individual that may not have that type of bacteria. And so you're just hoping that you sort of hit the mark and it does kill that bacteria. Now, looking at a few studies around this, narrow spectrum is better to use. Um, and that's because it actually has less side effects. But the outcomes are actually pretty similar between both. Um, and this is looking at, uh, this was, uh, looking at children. Uh, they both have similar improvements in, uh, in their symptoms. Um, and there's no difference in the quality of life between the two. So in terms of effectiveness, both are effective at stopping the process of those bacteria from functioning and both improve the quality of life. So let's talk about how they function now. And as I said before, they're either bacteriostatic or bactericidal. Now, if uh, antibiotics act on the cell wall, they're usually going to be bactericidal. They're going to kill the bacteria. So they're going to break down that cell wall and membrane and basically let out the contents from within that prokaryote. Now, some of the other functions of antibiotics is to stop the machinery that make DNA and RNA. So we've spoken a bit about the interruption of the uh, reverse transcriptase in viruses. Well, again, in bacteria, we can do similar functions. We can stop the machines that make the uh, DNA and RNA in the bacteria. We can also have an impact on the protein producers. So these are the ribosomes and any associated proteins. We can stop them from making things. And again, this is going to either slow down or stop the bacteria completely. So again, the dot point does say assess the effectiveness. So reasonably high level verb, you want to do an assessment. So in terms of its effectiveness, it has been very effective. On average, it's been estimated that it has doubled our lifespan, which is pretty significant. It has significantly reduced pain and suffering, and it reduces the disease impact on individuals. In terms of its negative effects, the use of broad-spectrum antibiotics obviously has an impact on the production of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And these are becoming more prevalent as we continue to use antibiotics. So this is probably going to be an issue more in the future, but it certainly is one at the moment. Overall, however, I would say that... If, <laughs> Antibiotics have been a net positive for humanity, increasing life expectancy, reducing suffering and pain in individuals. So make sure you do have a good answer. I can see that being more of an extended response question with that assess verb. All right, I hope that was useful today, guys. And as always, make sure you check out STEM Reactor at stemreactor.com.au if you need any biotechnology stuff in your school. They do wonderful work with uh, extension science and other sciences as well. So make sure you check them out at stemreactor.com.au. See you next time.